much to teach them. I'm just kidding. He, uh, he really did an incredible job of fleshing out the real meaning of what God intended when he gave Moses those commandments to give to those that he led. So when Alex asked me to take the message today, I thought it would be fitting to do something that was something of a follow-up on the topic. Sort of tie the whole thing together with a bow and wrap it up. But I'm not interested in recapping anything that Alex taught. In fact, quite on the contrary. Because you can always listen to his messages uh, on the website. What I want to do this morning is to answer the question, what now? Most of us have known the Ten Commandments for a long time. In fact, some of you probably even memorized them in Sunday school. And now Alex has done a fantastic job of explaining them and their intended application in an extended manner for those who truly desire to live godly lives. You've got the information. It's all there. But there's a lot of information there. That expanded version of the Ten Commandments is a lot. <clears throat> but I do want to clarify a few things that might raise questions in our mind of some, some things he said. And I want to make some explanation of the overall application of the entire series. Because, as I said, there's a lot there to grasp. But lucky for us, I learned a trick in college that really made things a lot easier when it came to studying and getting through all the hard stuff. You see, Tish read all of my books for me and wrote all of my papers, and it really made things a lot easier. <laughs> it's a good trick, but it's absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about here this morning. Uh, the trick I learned is cliff notes. and. <clears throat> I'm certain I was the last guy on the planet to figure out what cliff notes were. Uh, but if you're slow like me, cliff notes take long books and condense them into pamphlets. I mean, you can take War and Peace and stick it in your back pocket. That's what cliff notes are. And basically, it tells you all of the important stuff that might be on a test if you were to be tested on reading the book. Now, there's a lot of people who criticize cliff notes. And they're called teachers. <laughs> teachers think students won't read the book if there's a condensed version. And they're right. But there's a lot more people that praise cliff notes. And they're called students. Anyway, let's get back to the subject at hand. And the expanded teaching of the Ten Commandments does encompass a great deal of information. But lucky for us, Jesus happens to be the cliff note specialist of the entire universe <clears throat> when it comes to what we really need to know. Remember in the book of Matthew when the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus? Matthew 22 says, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophet. There you have it. Love God, love people. That's it. You're dismissed. You're welcome. That's all. <clears throat> okay, maybe that's not all. What exactly did Jesus mean when he answered the Pharisees in this manner? Did he just do away with the Ten Commandments? And just say, hey, just kidding about ten, there's just two? Well, probably not, since earlier in Matthew he actually uh, says, do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So he didn't do away with the Ten Commandments and just say there's two. <clears throat> so what did he do? Add two? Now there's twelve commandments? I think I think Alex adequately addressed this in his messages. In fact, a couple of times. What he did was he gave the Reader's Digest version, the Cliff Notes version of the Ten Commandments. He condensed the first five commandments into love God and the second five commandments into love people. Love God, love people. That's it. And Jesus really didn't just roll this one out just for the Pharisees that day. Remember, Jesus knew Scripture pretty well. In fact, Jesus is Scripture. The Old Testament teaches the same thing in Deuteronomy 6, and I love that Deuteronomy 6 passage where God's teaching men how to be fathers and how to pass along to their children what they know. And it's a great chapter. And verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So Jesus wasn't giving the Pharisees anything new there at all. That's something they all should have known. And Jesus was also pretty familiar with Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance nor hold any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Nothing new there either. He's teaching them what they all should have known already. But then he comes up with another commandment in John chapter 13 that might add a little bit of confusion to all this commandment stuff. 1334 says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So if both the Old Testament and Jesus taught that the greatest commandments were to love God and also love one's neighbor, then what news is found here in this new commandment that he gives? <clears throat> Jesus said to love your neighbor as I have loved you. That's the newness of it. And how did he love them? He gave his life for them. He was willing to lay down his life. That's the newness of this new commandment. We're to love that greatly. And that's what all the commandments are trying to tell us. It's all about love. And when I really meditate on some of the nuances of what God has said out in these greatest commandments, I can actually get kind of emotional. And if you really meditate on it, I think you'll see why. 
God wants Tom to love him. Me, Tom from Los Lunas, New Mexico. He wants me to love him. He knows me, and he wants me to love him anyway. And I think that's really fantastic. <coughs> it's astonishing to me that he loves that much. And it's astonishing to me that he really wants me to know him. And he knows me in a manner that's incredible. If you were to go up to God and say, hey, God, do you know Tom? Lost and Lewis there? And he goes, sure I do. Know everything about him. What do you need to know? He knows me. And I think that's incredible. I bet there's people here that didn't know my name until I just told you. You already forgot. So There's a story about, about this concept that I heard a while back, and it's about people's names and how easily we can get trapped in this uh, arena. Back in the 60s, those of us that can remember the 60s, uh, <clears throat> the, the uh, focus of the hippie movement was in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. And some of you may have even gone there, and that's why you have gray hair now. But it was a, a, a historic part of town that was occupied by the hippie movement. And when the generation of love was over, it reverted back to a high-rent district, and all the hippies couldn't afford that, so they had to move out. And they moved down to Santa Cruz, a little further south. And they eventually had children and got married, probably in that order. The hippies of the love generation didn't name their kids John or Sally or Aaron or Alex. People in the mountains around Santa Cruz soon became accustomed to their children playing with little kids who were named Time Warp or Spring Fever or Moonbeam or Earth or Precious Promise or Dweezil or Moon Unit or all these other things. And <clears throat> all of these kids eventually ended up in public school. And that's when the kindergarten teachers first met Fruit Stand. Every fall, according to tradition, parents bravely applied name tags to their children, put them on the bus, said goodbye, and sent them to school. So it was for Fruit Stand. The teachers thought the boy's name was a little odd. They tried to make the best of it. Would you like to play with blocks, Fruit Stand? Hey, fruit stand, you want a snack? And each time he accepted, rather hesitantly. By the end of the day, his name didn't seem any weirder than Woodstocks or, or Sunbeams. And as the first day ended, the teachers led the children out to the bus stop, out to their buses to go home. And a lot of kids were shy, and they didn't answer many things. And when they asked Fruit Stand which bus was his, he didn't answer them. But that wasn't a problem because they had given specific instructions to the parents that on the reverse side of their uh, name tag, they were to write the bus stop that the kid was going to. So the teacher simply turned over his name tag, and there neatly printed was the word Anthony. Uh, so God knows Anthony, too. And he knows each one of us by name, and that should thrill us incredibly. And he wants 
us to love him. So if the most important commandment is to love God with all of our being, how do we do it? What does it look like? What do we compare it with? Where do we go from there? Well, the only thing I have to compare it with is the love I have for Tish. I'm guessing that most of us know what the feeling of love is, that ooey gooey deep down can't live without you, maybe can't even breathe without you kind of love. Right, Jane? You know? Well, Tish and I have over 50 years of that kind of feeling for one another. And I really do love her with that ooey gooey can't live without you love. And over the past 50 plus years, I've tried to demonstrate that feeling by my actions. Because that's what love is. It's an action word. It's a verb. So how is that feeling transferred to action? Well, first off, I know her. I, just, I don't just know about her. I know her. I know who she is, what she likes, what makes her sad, what makes her happy. I know her when she's awake. I know her when she's asleep. I've studied her. I know her character, her desires, her dreams, her plans. I watch her in her sleep, and it makes me smile. I like looking at her looking at me like I hung the moon. I love her smile. I love her contented size. And then I take all of that learned knowledge, and I transfer it to action. I try to do the things she enjoys doing. I try to avoid the things she doesn't enjoy doing. I like to do the things that make her happy, and I spend time with her every day because I want to, and she wants to spend time with me. And in over 50 years, I've never lost sight of who Tish really is. And there's never been a day in over 50 years that I haven't told her out loud that I love her. And I keep working on knowing her better and loving her better if that's even possible. So I tell you all of this to say that's the closest I can come to explaining what loving someone with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind looks like. It's the closest I can explain the first commandment, the, most, the greatest commandment. Only instead of a person, the object of that love has to be God himself. Is that even possible? Have we ever even tried it? If we were to try it, what would it look like? Well, I know what I've done regarding my relationship with Tish. I know it's worked out for a long time, so maybe that's a good place to start. Do I know God? Not do I know about God. Do I know God? Have I studied who he is? Do I understand him as deeply as humanly possible? Do I spend time with him every day? There's so much to look at regarding this idea of knowing God, but in looking at Scripture, it seems that the description most used in speaking about God and his character is that God is holy. Holy. I remember as a kid, I was absolutely bored with church. We were good Catholics growing up, so you had to go to church every Sunday or you'd go to hell. And what kid wants to do that? <clears throat> so we were there every Sunday, and I I didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ at the time. 
But I did know there was a God, and I know he was torqued at me. He didn't like me much. But I obviously didn't know him. But church was so boring, I didn't even want to. I learned years later, it was C.S. Lewis who said, how little people know who think holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. If we know God's holiness, it becomes irresistible. Our relationship with him is so on fire. So if God is described so many times in scripture as holy, maybe that's a good place to start to know him. But in studying for this message, I came across another quote by J.C. Ryle that was written back in 1879, and it might as well just have been written today. He said, I have a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness and entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians in this country. And I think that's probably an understatement. So if we find ourselves among those who have not sufficiently attended to practical holiness, it might do us a great deal of good in our understanding of the first and greatest commandment to give serious effort to God's holiness, understanding that. The word holy means to divide, to mark off, to set apart from everything else. Our English root refers to that which is whole, complete, used of God, Holiness is that which divides God from everyone and everything else in the universe and existence. God's holiness refers to both his majesty and his moral character. I'm just going to touch on a portion of what we might do to come to a more complete understanding of loving God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. And a great place to begin is that journey is in Isaiah chapter 6 pretty recognizable passage in which Isaiah has a vision and he describes it like the starting like this starting in verse 1 he says in the year of king Uzziah's death i saw the lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple seraphim were standing above him each having six wings with two each covering his face with two each covering his feet and with two each he flew and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And I said, Woe is to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. So Isaiah starts out, giving us a little bit of historical reference for when this happened, the year King Uzziah died, the year the earthly throne was empty. What did he see? He looked up and he saw the Lord upon the throne. Earthly throne's empty, and yet God is still there on his throne. And Isaiah saw the Lord's majesty high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filling the entire temple. That's majesty. That's holiness. The word Lord here is, is the title Adonai, which has reference to his absolute sovereignty as king of kings, nothing above him. And Isaiah is saying something like this, in the year that we lost our human king, I saw the real king. 
And imagine what it must have been like for Isaiah to see the Lord high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple. The length of the train of someone's robe or, or wedding gown has traditionally been an indicator of status or importance. When Princess Diana got married, her train was 25 feet long. I guess that's a lot of status. But not to be outdone, a Romanian princess had a train that was 1.85 miles long. I'm going really... <laughs> anyway, it took 100 days, 10 seamstresses, and more than $7,300 to put her in the book of records, the Guinness Book of World Records, with the longest bridal train. And that seems like some pretty serious status, but it's nothing compared to God's train of his robe literally filling every portion of the temple. That's greatness. And Isaiah describes what he saw next. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The seraphim are mentioned only in this passage of Scripture. And they were certainly not little chubby babies with wings. They had a mission. There were a certain group of angels whose personal calling was to attend to God's holiness. They covered their faces because they were in the presence of holiness. They covered their feet as a sign of humility. And with two they flew, probably indicating that they were ready to do God's bidding wherever it was. The most incredible thing about this passage is not the seraphim's appearance, but their message. They cried out in adoration, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, when we want to emphasize the importance of something in English, we underline it or use italics or boldface or capital letters. We may follow it with a couple exclamation points. The Jewish people use repetition when they want to emphasize something. To say the word three times in succession is to seriously elevate its importance. When the angels said, holy, 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 they're emphasizing the breathtaking splendor of God's holiness. Understand that in all of Scripture, this is the only attribute of God that is repeated three times. The Bible never says God is love, 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 or light, 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 or truth, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. It says he is holy, holy, holy. What was Isaiah's reaction when he came face to face with God's majesty, with, it, with his holiness? He didn't yawn and say, I'm bored. He said, I'm ruined. said, woe is me. And when he sees the holiness of God, he's forced to confront his own unholiness. Isaiah was devastated by God's holiness. He was ruined, wrecked, destroyed. Maybe for the first time in his life, when he saw God as absolutely holy, he saw himself as unholy. As long as Isaiah was comparing himself to other mortals, he stood pretty good, and we do that a lot. We compare ourselves with other people and go, I'm not doing as bad as he's doing. 
but the instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was morally and spiritually annihilated. If we could only see a portion of what Isaiah saw, we would be changed forever. Many of us are bored with God because we don't understand who he really is. And if we don't understand who God is, then we will never really know him or love him in a manner that Jesus was telling us to do in the greatest commandment. So it seems like that's a great place to put our initial focus on loving God with all our hearts and our souls and our minds. We can purpose in our lives to know God's holiness. Just like we can purpose knowing our spouse. But it will never just happen. There's something required of us. I looked up a couple of other places to start in regard to deepening our relationship with God. <clears throat> and there's a lot of verses that tell us what pleases God. I'm pretty sure that we, when we start to do the things that please God, he would see it as us loving him more and more. We please God by believing in him. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it is impossible to believe God. So our faith pleases him. We certainly please him by obeying him. He says, friends, if you keep on doing the things which I command you, we are friends. We please God by praising him. We can see that all the way through the Psalms. The Psalm we read this morning is full of praise for his holiness. We please him by serving him. Whatever you've given to the least of these, you've given to me. We please him. All of these things that please God are clear demonstrations of our love for him. That's where the greatest commandment takes us. So that gives us a starting place on the greatest commandment. What about the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. I guess the first thing we have to do is be convinced that loving our neighbor is really that important. And it is. Jesus said so. So whether you like your neighbor or not, it's really important. Now we have to be willing to do what it takes to love our neighbor. Because that's not going to happen. Remember, love is a verb. It's an action word. It's a kind of one of those get off your butt and start doing something verb. So who is our neighbor, and what are we supposed to do? Well, maybe the first thing to do is to compile a list of the one another's of Scripture. You've heard of those, the one another's. Those are your neighbors, all those one another's. Here's just a, a sampling not exhaustive at all. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Live in agreement with one another. Serve one another. Be kind to one another. Be compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Speak to one another. With psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. I could go on. But I think that's enough to work on right now. Imagine the difference just in our lives if we were to be those kind of people, let alone the lives that we touch. 
we would be different. We'd stick out like a sore thumb. Just like we're supposed to. Henry David Thoreau wrote, If a man loses pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So we as believers are supposed to be possessed by a different spirit than that of the world. The one in the world is greed, lust, selfishness, pride, arrogance, those kind of things. But we're to march to the beat of a different drum. We're supposed to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to march to his beat in our lives. And the only way to do that is to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. What are the things of the Spirit? Well, Galatians 5 gives us a pretty good place to start. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit as well. Let us march to his drum. A life that is lived according to Matthew 5.16 will actually honor both the first and second greatest commandment. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That meets both requirements. Concentrating on doing that singular verse in our lives daily will fulfill that commandment, both those commandments. And it's possible, but it takes a genuine commitment. It takes real love to do it. I love what D.L. Moody once said. He said, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And that which I can do by the grace of God, I will do. Are we committed? Do we want to fulfill the two greatest commandments? Do we want to be set apart? There's not a lot we can do about the time we've wasted already. There's a whole lot we can do about the time we have left in this world. Are we going to spend it on ourselves, or are we going to spend it showing God in the world that we love Him?